Most good agents have an editorial eye, and they can look at a project that is 90% of the way there and say, I know why this isn't 100% of the way there. Help the author through the process of saying, hey, this is a problem. What are the options for solving it? What do you think would fit best with your vision of the book? What would you like best? Welcome to the Author Biz, the show that's all about the business of being an author. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and this is episode number 29. Wherever you are, however you listen, thanks for spending some of your time with me today. Over the first 28 episodes of this show, we've heard from authors, both traditional and self-published, marketing experts, book reviewers, and even publishers. But until today, we haven't heard from what can be one of the author's greatest assets, the agent. Do you have an agent? If so, you know how valuable they can be to your author business. But if you don't, I'll bet you've got questions about things like what agents can actually do for us as authors. How important is it to find the right agent? And how do we go about it? What happens once we get an agent? What else do agents do other than providing entree to publishers? I had the opportunity to ask those questions, and as you'll hear, a lot more of today's guest, Ann Hawkins, of the John Hawkins & Associates Literary Agency. Ann represents best-selling authors across multiple genres, and as you'll hear in the interview, the agency she works for has deep roots in the history of publishing in this country. If you're a regular listener of the Author Biz, you probably noticed the new opening segment. I fully intended to redo the open at the first of the year, but as happens with all of us, life gets in the way. I hope you like the new open, and I know you're going to like this interview with Ann. The show notes for this show can be found at theauthorbiz.com slash Ann, and that's Ann spelled A-N-N-E. If you have any questions or comments, that's the best place to leave them. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the show at the AuthorBiz website or at iTunes. If you do have an iTunes account, please leave a review. They're as valuable on iTunes as they are on Amazon. Now, let's get on with the show. My guest today is literary agent Anne Hawkins. Anne represents a variety of authors, with work ranging from thrillers to literary fiction to serious nonfiction. Her clients include best-selling authors like Tasha Alexander, Miranda Beverly Whittemore, and my guest in episode three of The Author Biz, Taylor Stevens. Anne, welcome to The Author Biz. Steve, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, this is a thrill for me because I've been doing this for a while now, and you're the first agent I've spoken with. So I've got a lot of questions, and I know our listeners are are going to be excited about this particular episode. Well, works for me. Fire away. Well, let's start out by talking about your agency. You work for John Hawkins and Associates in New York, and the agency has a, a history that dates all the way back to 1893. Tell us a little bit about the agency and how you came to be involved with them. Okay, the agency started, obviously, back way back when, when our founder, Paul R. Reynolds, um, who was a went to school at Harvard with the likes of the James brothers, and I'm referring to Henry and William here. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he, although he wrote a number of books on writing and agenting and the business of writing, even, you know, during his lifetime, he um, 
soon realized that, you know, he was not the writer himself, but his writer friends desperately need somebody with a business head to help them further their careers. And so that is exactly where he started. And back at that time, books were not that big a deal. Magazines were huge. And many times books were serialized. So this is one way that the business has changed radically uh, in the past 130 years, or almost 130 years. Uh, and some of his early clients were the likes of Willa Cather and Jack London. <laughs> uh, and, you know, moving on through the years, there were, you know, people like P.G. Wodehouse. And, you know, after a period of time, his uh, son, Paul R. Reynolds Jr., joined the agency. And continued into the mid-century. And then, lo and behold, John Hawkins married Paul R. Reynolds Jr.'s daughter. Oh. So John came into the agency as well. And upon Paul R. Reynolds Jr.'s departure, um, John, one day in a fit of hubris, first he bought the agency, (laughs) and then one day in a fit of hubris put his own name on the door. (laughs) And even though John has sadly passed away, we've left it there because it's kind of a nice part of tradition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the, the middle of the century, the 20th century, you know, we were the agents of record for books like Roots, um, Shogun, um, the autobiography of Malcolm X, and all of the uh, Richard Wright books. So we have kind of continued to, you know, to really work with authors who are speaking to their time, as, of course, all those luminaries were. And this has now continued into the present day. And, you know, we've had our client list includes people like Joyce Carol Oates, who has been multiply nominated for the Nobel Prize among many and has won many other prizes. And a couple of years ago, we astonishingly enough, had two Pulitzer Prize winners in one year. Really? Yes. Uh, One was a guy named Fred Logoval, who wrote a book called The Embers of War, which was about all of the contributing causes to the Vietnam War. And uh, Adam Johnson's The Orphan Master's Son. So... You know, we've really kind of continued to represent, you know, people who are like Logoval, who are extremely serious authors, but we also represent, you know, one of my favorite stories is back in the day, one of our agents had a little book and he tried to sell it to a million people and nobody wanted it. And about the 30th place he went, somebody bought this book, okay? And it was a very modest success. But then somebody said, you know, I think this would make a great movie. So they got the book, and they made this little kind of low-budget movie, which did moderately well, and it sort of had a cult following. Then somebody saw the movie and said, you know, this would make a killer TV series. Any clues to what the book might be? Mash. Oh, no. I didn't see that coming. (laughs) No, it was Mash. (laughs) 
Wow. So, I mean, you know, you sometimes you take on the great big names like mm-hmm. a Clavel or somebody like that, and, of course, they do very well, and sometimes you take on a little book that didn't sell for much money, and it turns out to be a world beater. So we have sort of eclectic and sometimes quirky taste at this agency. And I have a feeling that you like that. I love it. <laughs> it's just so much fun. I mean, I mean, I do represent a lot of thrillers, mm-hmm. but if that's all I ever had to read, I think I'd feel a little deprived. You know, you just have to, um, you got to keep your mind hopping around in different directions. Well, tell us a little bit about your client list. You mentioned thrillers, mysteries. Those are the things that I'm most familiar with and the authors of yours that I'm the most familiar with. Um, But tell us about some of the other genres that you represent. Well, I do some literary fiction. And I would say Miranda Beverly Whittemore is a... Uh, really, the kind of literary author that I I like because she she has all of the graceful style that contributes to a literary novel, but she also can tell a story. And you know, I like stories. And you know, I would call her very accessible literary fiction. Um, I also do a very eclectic list of nonfiction mm-hmm. and. These are kind of on a case-by-case basis. Um, I have a book on philosophy coming out from Norton this fall. I have a book on um, the behavior of marine mammals coming out from <laughs> Harton. Yes, Harton Mifflin Harcourt. Um, I've done books on history, politics, um, you know, and quite a number of them on um, nature and the outdoors. And, you know, it's one of these things that I'm sort of, I'm by no means, you know, a great explorer or not going to wade down in the Amazon looking for anacondas. But I happened to put on one guy and within a year sold three of his books to three different publishers. Mm-hmm. And his tracker and wildlife biologist friend says, oh, well, there's somebody out there that actually represents our stuff. So, <laughs> so I started getting these guys, and I've done, like, a book on wilderness survival, like how you can go out in the woods with nothing but clothing and a belt knife and survive for 40 days. Um, I find it fascinating. So that's a little bit of my... I've even done a beauty book. Really? Which is yes, but it was such an it was such an important book. I thought it was called Beauty Pearls for Chemo Girls. Oh, uh huh. And it was how to how to look and feel your best while going through chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. That is an important book. That is an important book. So that is kind of a, a broad overview of my. Crazy taste in nonfiction. <laughs> All right. Now, with that as a background, let's take a step back for the audience. Uh, the overwhelming majority of people that listen to this will know the answer to this question. But for the few people that don't, where does a literary agent fit in the publishing process? Okay. The, a literary agent 
is the author's representative. And, you know, it's pretty much the charge of a literary agent to defend her clients or his or her clients' best interest throughout all phases of the publishing process. And this could be the submission phase, you know, once it's accepted, the contract phase or the deal phase, uh, making sure that everything happens on schedule. You know, it's, I mean, we have a good sense of knowing what needs to happen when. And the dog that doesn't bark in the night can be a very scary thing. It's like, hey, wait a minute. Uh, we haven't seen a cover for this book. <laughs> you know, this, so you try to keep that on track. Mm-hmm. Um, we also are very keen on keeping track of their sub-rights, like sales to foreign countries, and also processing... Uh, royalties and making sure that the authors get their money and that the statements are accurate. But I think one of the most important things that agents do, I mean, those are the nuts and bolts things, Mm -hmm. but most good agents have an editorial eye. And they can look at a project that is 90% of the way there and say, whoa, I know why this isn't 100% of the way there. Mm-hmm. And then work with the author so that the author can, I mean, for any editorial problem, there are a dozen solutions. And, but help the author through the process of saying, hey, this is a problem. What are the options for solving it? What do you think would fit best with your vision of the book? Which, what would you like best? And, you know, really helping shape the projects. For fiction, this is very true. For nonfiction, it's even more true. Really? Be- oh, yeah. Because most nonfiction, and I'm excluding things like memoirs, because that's a whole different ball of wax, but most um, informative or prescriptive nonfiction is sold on the basis of a book proposal and sample chapters. It, it, rarely are they complete books. And the agent has to make sure that mm-hmm. everything is in that proposal that the publisher needs in order to make a decision to publish the book. So they always take work. Now, how important is it, uh, the relationships that someone like you who have, who, who's been in the business for a number of years, you're in the middle of, of New York publishing, how important is knowing who's buying what at any given time um, how important is that to an author in terms of finding an agent? Well, you know, obviously, if you've written a slender book of poetry, I'm not the agent for you, <laughs> you know? Authors can find out. There, there is a fabulous website called publishersmarketplace.com. Mm-hmm. And what this website does is it lists actual book deals with, you know, the name of the book, a brief description of the book, the editor and publishing house that bought it, and the agent who sold it. And this is accessible for a small fee. And an author can go on this thing, and let's say they are a thriller writer. Well, they look up crime or thriller, because you can put in multiple keywords. And all of these books are going to pop up. 
and you start looking for the agents who really work with this genre. You know, there are also publications like Jeff Herman's Guide. I think the AAR has some um, search tool on its website so you can hook up, you know, you can query the agents who are appropriate for your project. Uh, but it's very important to have an agent who actually knows the business because, you know, you say, oh, well, it's mystery. Well, guess what? <laughs> there are so many different kinds of mysteries out there. There's really dark stuff. There are dog and cat mysteries with little old ladies. Mm-hmm. And very different editors are going to buy these things. And an agent needs to know, you know, have some rudimentary idea of the editor's tastes and wants and about the publishing house's wants because some publishing houses do not do certain kinds of books. It's just not within their, you know, their profile or mandate. And that's, I think, one of the important things that an agent can bring to the table is saying, okay, I've got a good idea of where this book should go. I mean, Mm -hmm. one of my personal rules of thumb is, if I read a query letter that sounds interesting, but I can't think of, just off the top of my head, five appropriate editors, that book's not for me, because I don't think I'm going to be able to place it as successfully as perhaps someone else. Now, let's let's dive into that a little bit more, because... I, I think there's a sense, I've, I've spoken to people at conferences, and I'm sure you have too, that have queried agents and have been rejected for any number of reasons. One of them may yeah. have been what you just described. A lot of times there's, there's a valid reason for an agent to reject an author that has nothing to do with the quality of the work. Is that, is that a true statement? You are absolutely right. I mean, it could be something that's just totally out of the agent's wheelhouse. Um, I mean, I, I saw a nonfiction query the other day that I thought was fascinating, but it kind of snuck into the self-help type category, which is something I just don't do. Or perhaps it might be a business book. I don't do business books either, even though the book might be brilliant. Uh, but there are tons of reasons. Um, the most important is that it's just not something that the agent feels she has the necessary expertise to take on. Uh, but there are all sorts of weird reasons why an agent might turn something down. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, conflict of interest. If somebody wrote you know, a novel of Victorian suspense that was way too close to Tasha Alexander's work, mm-hmm. I wouldn't take it on no matter how good it was. Because it would be, there would always be the suspicion in everyone's mind that perhaps, you know, I was sharing secrets or something like that, and life's just not worth it. So let's use that as an example. So l- let's say I write uh, Victorian mysteries, and yeah. I see that you have published Tasha and the Lady Emily mysteries, so I think, oh, you would be a perfect agent for me. And mm-hmm. uh, you reject me, and I get my feelings hurt, because, of course, you're, you're already representing something just like that, but it's clearly because of this conflict of interest. Although, you know, maybe my book wasn't very good, but if the book was good, it, it could very well be because of a conflict of interest that, um, that I might not know anything about. That's entirely true. I mean, now, on the other hand, if your Victorian mystery thriller suspense book, you know, had 
a male protagonist who was like maybe a journalist or something like that, I might not have a problem with that because it's so different from what Tasha writes. But if it's too close, it's it's just not a good thing. Okay, let's let's talk for a little bit about querying agents. Let's say I'm a new author and I have a manuscript that's a, a suspense novel, say, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and I I want to begin querying agents. How, what is that process like? We've already talked about going to uh, publishers marketplace and and let's say yeah. I can find the agents that I think are best. How should I do that? Should I approach them one at a time? Should I approach them in small batches? What's the best way to do that? You know, back in the day when queries were on paper and came in the mail, um, the very small batch approach was probably the right way to go. But what I would do if I were an author is I would say, okay, here are 15 or 20 agents that I think are my A-list. You know, these are people, I've checked their websites, I've researched them, you know, they're reputable. Here's my A-list. And I would throw that A-list out there, but I wouldn't go to every agent on the planet. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would really make an A-list, a B-list, a C-list. And so that you wind up, you have a better chance of winding up. Because let's face it, you know, if you mingle, you know, an A, B, C, and D list, you know, your D lister may be more hungry Mm-hmm. Then you're a lister, and what if they, you know, hop on this thing, read it, and offer representation? What are you going to do then? You know, when maybe the a list agents have even haven't had time to read it yet. So now, I, I would I would prioritize. Okay, and and that's a that is a really good point. The idea of, of breaking them down in lists. So let's let's say I'm sending out to the a list. In general, I know that on your website uh, there are submission guidelines. Do yes. the most Agency websites have submission guidelines. To the best of my knowledge, yes, they do. Are they are they similar, or do they vary dramatically? You just have to check them out on a case by case basis. You know, our website basically says, "Send me a query letter, you know, possibly a synopsis and a few sample chapters." And I think, generally speaking, that might be true for most agencies across the board. Okay, but it's it's so easy to get on the web and check. I mean, right. why shoot blind when it's the information's right in front of you? Okay, now let's say I've done this. I've 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 written the manuscript. I've written the query letter that's personalized to you and to nineteen others a listers, and I send that out with uh, with some sample chapters and a synopsis. How long should I wait then before I begin contacting the B list? That's a good question. I mean, I have, I know that on certain agency websites, not ours, but on certain ones, it says, if you don't hear from us, a rejection. I mean, I, I, I'm not fond of that approach myself, but I know some people do do it. Uh, but I would say, if it's just a simple query, I'd say give it two, three weeks and then send another batch. Okay, yeah. it, is it appropriate to follow up, or do you just send them, and if you don't hear anything, move on? Some people follow up, some people don't. Um, it is possible for st- 
stuff to get lost in transit, even by email, mm-hmm. or to get accidentally deleted out of a spam folder. Because I do have legitimate queries every day wind up in my spam folder. And I'm pretty good about finding them. But am I going to get every one of them? I don't think so. But I think one way to make sure, give your query a better chance, is use the word query in the subject line. You know, if you just give the title of your book and the thing winds up in a spam folder, Mm -hmm. I think it's a whole lot more likely to get deleted. Okay, so it sounds like it would be a good idea to follow up at least once, just in case. Yeah, I, I think it would, just in case. It's not a bad idea. And I don't think anybody would. And I have, I've had people follow up, and, you know, this was some query that was, I remember answering and said, golly, I don't know what happened to my answer, but I know I answered it. Right. So, they, yeah, they do get lost. Oh, on that subject, mm-hmm. and this is just a weird little thing that I want to throw in. Some people have spam filters. Some authors have spam filters on their account where if I write them back, it comes back to me and says, in order to control spam, you have to register with me so that I can check and see if I want to receive this email. Well, you know, I suggest if you're querying, you turn that function off because a lot of agents are just going to say, I don't have time for this. Right. So that, that is just one little tidbit I'd throw in there. That is a really good point, and it's something that most people wouldn't think of. Exactly. When you read a query, wet, a query letter, um, what makes you really intrigued or the opposite? What would make you say, this is not for me, and it just, you hit the delete button? First of all, just a sloppy query letter. If there are all kinds of usage or grammar mistakes, this is, you know, this is, that's a complete turnoff. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, I don't, I don't have time to be somebody's, you know, grammar coach. Uh, but I think primarily I look for one that's well-written and with content that I say, hmm, this sounds as though this is a book that could actually sell some copies. You know, this is something I'd like to read. You know, I think a lot of people would like to read this. So I think the concept that the author is putting forward is really, really important. Okay, so let's say I've written this clever, well-crafted query letter. Um, My synopsis intrigues you. The first four chapters intrigue you. You say, I want to see more. Presumably, I've finished the manuscript already, and I send it to you. Is that the next step? Yes. Okay, and should that manuscript, let's say that I'm, I'm, j- I'm just using myself as an example here. I should use somebody else, but I'm using me. Um, should I have that manuscript edited so that it po- it's polished and just shines by the time it gets to you? I, I'm not saying to, you know, go and get a professional copy editor and pay for, you know, all of that kind of thing. I don't, most people... If you're a real deal writer, you're a real deal writer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, maybe there is a typo, like there is a the instead of they. You know, I'm just not going to get all exercised about that. Okay. Because, uh, but yes, it should be 
the best you are able to produce on your own. Okay. It's not that you're not, you don't want to receive somebody's first draft. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, no, I definitely do not. The problem is, you know, agents are busy. Mm-hmm. And while we are editorially minded, you know, we do not want to, we're not going to take on a project that is going to require heavy duty developmental editing. You know, we'll help an author put the finishing touches and, you know, get it as sparkly as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to take on something that is going to require four or five more drafts to get it in passable shape. You know, that's the author's job. Okay, so let's going back to this this example again. I've I've sent you this beautiful manuscript. You like it. You think you can sell it. Um, we agree that I will be one of your authors. What should my expectations be at that point as an author? And what should your expectations be at that point as the agent? Let me back that up one one quick, Steve. Okay. 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 Let's say I've read the book, book. I really like it. And I say, I would like to talk with you about representing it. Okay. I think at this point, there's some questions you need to ask. Okay. I mean, I think, first of all, you need to feel very comfortable that we are on the same page editorially. That I am not going to ask you to do something that totally violates your vision of the book. And I think that this is extremely important. I don't mean that you need to say, oh, my book is perfect and I reject all suggestions, because you'll never make it through, if you sell it, you'll never make it through the editorial process, if you think like that. But you need to feel that you and your agent are on the same page. Um, You also really need to feel that this is an agent who is reputable and is going to handle dealings with you and dealings on your behalf, you know, in a professional fashion. And I want to stick one thing in here. Okay. You know, membership, there is a organization called the Association of Office Representatives, of which I and all of my fellow colleagues are members, which pretty much de- demands a, that, the author, that the agents stick to a specific canon of ethics in their handling of client funds and many, many other things. And by and large, agents in the AAR, as it's called, are real deal, they're reputable, they have a track record, and, you know, they, there's a little bit of a good housekeeping seal of approval put on them. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, there are plenty of hardworking, effective agents who are not AAR members. And I don't think an author should discriminate against, necessarily, against an agent who is not, because there are numerous reasons. You know, there are many West Coast agents you know, this is a New York-based organization. Many West Coast agents say, hey, the dues are kind of steep, and I'll never make it to an AAR meeting since they're all in New York. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I don't see any point in joining. But it's worth finding out if these people do ascribe to the same set of good business practices that the AAR agents do. And another thing I would say is, you know, your agent doesn't have to be your best friend. Your agent doesn't have to be your shrink. 
but you got to feel some kind of connection there because you're going to be working closely with this person, you know, potentially for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important that you go with your gut and, you know, say, hey, is this somebody I want to work with? And one other thing that I think is huge is the level, the agent's level of accessibility to the authors. Now, some authors, especially some nonfiction authors, really don't rely on their agents for much except, you know, placing the manuscript, getting the contract organized, and supervising the publication process. Other authors need a whole lot more than that. They want, like, a sounding board for ideas. Um, So, you know, authors, you know who you are. You know how much you would like in the way of accessibility, make sure the agents, you know, willing to provide that because people are different. So that's pretty much what I would say you need to ascertain. And of course, on my part, I want to make sure that the authors I'm working with are, are going to behave in a professional manner themselves, that they don't have unrealistic expectations and that they're not mean or crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Define unrealistic expectations. Oh, I mean, an author can say, I know that I have a book that is going to be an international bestseller and it's going to make us both millions of dollars. I mean, this, for, a first, for a first novel, mm-hmm. that's unrealistic. You know, you have to find an audience. And that doesn't always happen on book one. And for many of my authors, they did not become, well, a few of my authors did debut as bestsellers, Mm -hmm. but that's rare. You know, it's usually that you have built a career, you've built an audience, and, you know, the world is not necessarily going to be the path to your doorstep just because you've got a great idea. There's... Let's face it, a huge amount of luck is involved. Huge. And as authors, I, I, I refer to this, this luck as a lightning strike. And as authors, we see the lightning strike stories all the time. And so we don't even, I think in some cases, we don't think of them as unrealistic or one in a thousand or one in a hundred thousand type situations. Um, but what you're describing, the idea of building an audience and, you know, slowly over time in partnership with your agent and, and your uh, editor and the editor and the publisher and yes. building, building this momentum over time to the point where maybe on your seventh book, all of a sudden it just breaks out and, and things begin to take off for you. That's I, I, I don't know. That's what I remember seeing 20 years ago. You'd, you'd follow an author for six or seven books, and then all of a sudden their book was on the New York Times bestseller list. Oh, exactly. Uh, I, mean, I mean, for example, um, Dennis Lehane. I mean, he had many, many good books that sold very, very well. And then all of a sudden he hit the big one. And, I mean, there are plenty of people like that. Dan Brown, you know, mm-hmm. did not did not you know hit the jackpot in his first book. It, it's so, amazing how often you you someone hits the jackpot on what you think is the first book, and then you find out later there's a backlist. 
Exactly. I mean, like, and Dan Brown is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. You know, the Da Vinci Code. I mean, just it just totally, it just it was just a behemoth. But there have been books before that that I mean, they did they did fine, but they weren't the Da Vinci Code. So with a with a first time author, let's say you sign a, a first time author. They have a manuscript. You really like it. You think you can think of a few places where it could be placed. What's the process? What's the timing? What's the interaction between the agent and the author from that point going forward? Okay. Um, well, I'll read it. And it's very rare that there isn't some little problem or other that mm-hmm. you know, I perceive and that I'm hoping the author will address. So, you know, I'll, what I normally do is I read the book fast to see whether or not it's something that I might want to represent. And if, in fact, it is, at that point, I will offer representation. But then I'll say, listen, there were a few questions in my mind. I want to read this book again, slowly and carefully, and then I will, then we'll talk later. And, um, you know, because there are a couple of things that bothered me when I read it. So then, you know, I'll read it, I'll make notes, I'll talk with the author. And then the author will... You know, we'll discuss the problems and hopefully get them addressed. Because the truth of the matter is, Steve, if I see a problem, every editor that reads the book is going to see that problem, too. Mm -hmm. And all I'm doing is trying to avoid having a book turned down over something that is easily fixable. So once the author gets the thing in shape... My, what I normally do is I talk to the author and say, look, this is what I'm thinking about as a submission plan. I want to go to these five editors at these five publishing houses for the first round because they are my A-list. Okay. And I'll say, but, you know, it's always worth saying, is there anybody you can think of that I haven't thought of? Because Sure enough, maybe they met somebody at a writer's conference who just loved their work. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they have a very close friend who thinks the world of her editor and, you know, might provide, you know, might grease the wheels a little bit. You never know. So it's always worth asking if they've got a good idea, too. And because... Golly, sometimes they do. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I go out on submission. You know, hopefully the book sells in the first round. And, you know, obviously if more than one editor is interested in it, then things that get a little more, you know, you can be looking at preempts and auctions and stuff like that. But that is way beyond the scope of this conversation. <laughs> okay. But, you know, you you try to, you know, I try to find an editor who is keyed into that kind of book and is somebody whom I've had some contact with, hopefully in the past, one way or another. So I have an idea if this would be a good personality fit for the author. Um, you know, sometimes that's not possible. But I'll tell you, you know, after a number of years in the business, you do develop relationships with people and truthfully you develop you know relationships with editors whose tastes are similar to your own mm-hmm. so 
relate, it, it makes things a little easier. Now, granted, there are, from time to time, new young editors who burst onto the scene, and they are really, really good. And I have sold it, I have sold them to, you know, young editors as well, uh, and it's worked out well. But you know, not every young editor is going to stay in the business, truthfully. So you have this manuscript, and you're sending it out. You've segmented the same way you suggested that the author segment um, queries. You're exactly. segmenting the editors, and you've sent it to the A-list. How long do you wait to hear back? And I'm assuming that you, you might do a little bit more follow-up than, uh, than the author oh, might yeah. have done. with the. So how long do you wait to move on then to the B-list? Well, what I do is... In my submission letter, which is not unlike the author's query letter, mm-hmm. um, I always say I am sending this book to a few other editors and would appreciate an indication of your initial interest in it by, and I'll give a date approximately one month in the future. And if that date comes and goes and I have not heard from the editor, I'll just write him a little note and say, hey, I haven't heard back from you about Susan Smith's novel, you know, whatever it may be, um, mm-hmm. would you please let me know its status? And, you know, they told my back, oh, golly, Anne, you know, I have been so busy. I haven't gotten to it yet. I'll put it in my bag to read this weekend. So that, that's how I go about following up. Okay. And I tend, so- unless somebody is just totally unresponsive, I will kind of wait to hear from one list before proceeding to the next. In your experience... Uh, how does the author deal with the time that elapses? Because it's, you know, this is all taking time. And are they sitting on pins and needles waiting for the phone to ring? Or ideally, are they working on the next book? Well, hopefully they're working on the next book. But I'm, they are always on pins and needles. Give <laughs> mm-hmm. me a break, Steve, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a poor author is sitting there and, and chewing on her fingernails while, you know, this book is getting read in publishing houses and may in fact be getting multiple reads within publishing houses because it's very rare these days for an editor to be able to acquire a book strictly on her own recognizance. You know, you have to have multiple reads. You have to, um, you know, and I think one book I sold, I got 11 reads in house. And this, this was down to people like foreign rights. And I mean, mm-hmm. lots and lots of reads. And then you finally have to go to the publisher and get permission to make an offer. And even with solid reads, books occasionally get turned down at that point. So it's, it is a process once that book gets to the publishing house. And even with solid reads, I'm assuming there are a lot of valid reasons why a book might be turned down. Say, for example, we just published one like that three months ago. Um, and it didn't do very well. Yeah. Right. That, mm-hmm. that is a very solid reason. Um, sometimes they are kind of trippy reasons. You know, like one publishing house that I, where I like everybody there very much, including the editor-in-chief, who's my pal, um, they know what they can publish successfully. And you, they'll say, you know, might say to me, look, 
we have no luck with international thrillers. So mm-hmm. don't say at that point it just don't even bother to send it. Um, so various publishing things can get turned down, just like agents turn down for quirky reasons. Publishing houses can too. Okay, you mentioned the different streams of rights um, that that go along with a manuscript. Let's let's say um, you sell. I think you said we use the. You use the name Susan Smith. Susan Smith's manuscript, you sell it to big-time publisher A. And yeah. b- big-time publisher A wants to publish the book. What other rights would they typically want at the same time? Okay, the ones that go into the deal memo. Let's, let's just go on that to start with. These are okay. the ones that you separate out when you're making the deal. Um, I mean, obviously, you've got an advance. The right. next big thing is whether they want... U.S. rights, which is U.S., Canada, then the Philippines and stuff like that, whether they want world English, which is all English language publication throughout the world, or whether they want world rights, which is publication in all languages throughout the world. And frequently, the territory, which is what we call that, is measured against the advance. And... You know, it may be that a slightly lower advance for U.S. rights only is better than a, bit, a slightly bigger advance for world rights. So that territory is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, these days, customarily, the publisher, uh, this is not 100%, but this is customarily, the publisher will retain first serial rights, which is the right to publish an excerpt of the book in in a periodical prior to publication. They will keep electronic rights. They will keep um, most generally audio rights. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of weird stuff like Braille, you know, stuff like that. Uh, Normally, the author will retain... All performance rights, and this is movies, stage play, radio, um, anything of that nature. And there's also a bunch of weird rights that go along with that, Um, one of which is like commercial rights, which is like, oh, if you had a book like Roger Rabbit, you know, the ability to make um, Jessica Rabbit dolls, okay? Oh, okay, all right. or T-shirts, or anything like that. Um, and the other one that they authors generally retain in some way, shape, or form is um, multimedia rights. For example, video games. Okay. Uh, there are a whole host of weird little rights that, generally speaking, the publisher keeps. I mean, for example, the right to publish... Um, an anthology to include the book in an anthology. Of course, this has to be negotiated as to whether it's an anthology of the author's own works or it can include works by other people. Um, there is something called premium rights, which allows the publisher to sell to a some type of business the right to publish the book with its own logo. Uh, and this this is, sounds weird, but I mean, for example, let's say you'd written a book on fly fishing. Mm-hmm. 
and L.L. Bean wanted to purchase the right to give that book away with its L.L. Bean sticker on it if you purchase more than $500 worth of fly fishing equipment. But there, and there was a, and, oh, there are all kinds of weird things like condensation and abridgment rights, you know, like a Reader's Digest condensed Okay, books, right. Uh-huh. Okay? But mm-hmm. there, there's a host of these weird rights that many of which will never, ever come into play. You, you kind of have to keep your eye on them. And this is something that the agent or the agency does. The agency negotiates the deal for the author for all of these different rights. Mm-hmm. I mean, for some of them, like premium, that's, that's really a contract point, just to make sure that the author gets approval. But mm-hmm. the biggies, like making sure they keep the performance package, you know, being sure that the advance is commensurate with the territory, as to whether it's U.S., World English, or all languages. These are really important things uh, because they can come back. And the other thing in negotiation that is critical to is the option clause. And that is Ex- basically... Yeah, explain that, please. All right. In virtually every contract, and again... Occasionally, you'll get an option clause taken out of a contract for a good and sufficient reason. But generally speaking, the publisher wants the right of first refusal for the author's next book. Now, what the agent has to do is negotiate that very narrowly. Mm -hmm. For example... When does the option clause kick into effect? I mean, if they say, oh, well, after publication of book one, I would say, oh, no, no, no. This is after acceptance of the book on the table. Because otherwise, an author could be hung up for 18 months and be unable to sell book two. You mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very important that the option clause is properly negotiated because that can really mess up an author later on. And the option clause, in in my mind, in, in the business that I've done in the past, which is outside of publishing, when there's an option clause, there's oftentimes a price associated with the with the option that you know they'll have the right to buy X for N. Is that what we're talking about here, or is it they essentially no, have the right no. to negotiate for They have the right this to negotiate book. for it. They, okay. They have, a, okay, with a typical option clause that I would negotiate, okay, the, the new book could be presented as soon as the old book was accepted, not published, accepted mm-hmm. for publication, final acceptance. Um, and there is a period of time where the author's agent and the publisher must negotiate exclusively for the next book. If they are unable to come to an agreement after that period of time, which is maybe 30 or 60 days, then the agent and author can take the book out and sell it to anybody they want to. Okay. But the truth of the matter is, this isn't like a film option. And let's not even go there either, where (laughs) they basically are saying, 
we have, you know, if we if we convert this option into a buy, it's going to be for so much money for the book for the um, for the book in order to turn it into a movie. There is generally no price set on a book option, and frankly, that because it can work to the author's disadvantage. You know, let's say that I sold a book for a first novel for $50,000, which is decent money, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't want to necessarily have to sell the second one for $50,000. What if it's a runaway bestseller? What if if it's made half a million dollars? (laughs) It's not Mm -hmm. in the author's best. It's it's in no one's best interest. Well, certainly not in the author's to be locked into something like that. And you've been in the business for a while, and things have changed over the course of the last four or five years. What do you see going into the future for the next three to five years? What do you, what do you see changing and staying the same? Well, as far as traditional publishing goes, I think we are starting to see. I, I think we're starting to see it settle into the ratio among let's say hardcovers trade paperbacks and ebooks sold all the figures i have seen indicate that you know at first ebooks were on a really 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 sharp upward curve and now that they're flattening a little bit i think one thing that is probably going to happen is that mass market papers paperbacks the rack size paperbacks right are going to tend to be replaced by ebooks you know, this is the cheapest possible way to get a print book as a mass market paperback. Right. And I think, in general, the mass market trade has been hit the hardest by e-books. You know, people still buy hardcovers. And people still buy – some people just like to read on paper. That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And reading groups, in particular, buy trade paperbacks. But I think the mass market – is going to be hit the hardest by ebooks. And of course, you have the whole self publishing thing, which is burgeoning out there. Mm-hmm. And I expect to see that continue to grow. Although the number of never before published authors who do strike it big in the self publishing world are small, it's mm-hmm. very small. Um, <clears throat> there are a number of authors out there who have been traditionally published in the past and have turned to self-publishing and are doing very well. But that's a whole different kettle of fish. Right, and they're, they're coming with different skill sets and many times with a backlist. Exactly, exactly. And they are a whole, that, that's a, that's a whole different ballgame because there are... Very, I mean, uh, there are a few former clients of mine that I'm still very friendly with. One guy, you know, still even represents his foreign rights, mm-hmm. um, who really became disillusioned by traditional publishing. And this is, you know, these are frequently these are people who are capable of writing more than one book a year. I mean, two, three books a year, mm-hmm. and they do well, but. Let's face it, these are people who have been professionally edited in the past. And as you said, they've got a whole different skill set here. And they have a following from their traditionally published books. I am not dumping on self-publishing one little bit. 
But I think, again, this is about management of expectations. Okay, you've been very generous with your time today, and I I thank you a lot. Let me let me ask one final question, and that is, what should I have asked you today that I didn't? You might have asked me, what is something that very few people know about you? <laughs> <laughs> what is something that very few people know about you? And I already know the answer to this because you know I do the my research. <laughs> I yeah. do, but but most listeners won't. So. Uh, you were a professional musician. Yes, I played the bassoon professionally. <laughs> now, for people who don't know what a bassoon is, I was in the high school band. So people who don't know what a bassoon is, tell us that. Okay, it is the lowest instrument in the woodwind family. And if you see them in the orchestra, they kind of resemble a cigar, a tall cigar that sits up above the musician's head. And they have a beautiful sound. They do have a beautiful sound. And uh, <laughs> they, you don't very often just hear a bassoon. <laughs> no, but, you don't. Uh, yes, uh, they, they are beautiful. And um, that, that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting shift from being a professional, is, it, is the term bassoonist? Yes. yes. From a professional bassoonist to a literary agent. Yes. But in case you're... Your listeners want to know what a bassoon sounds like. Think grandfather in Peter and the Wolf. That's a bassoon. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> and thank you so much. This has Steve, been a- this has been a blast. It's really yeah. been fun talking to you. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like to find out more about the show or anything we mentioned during this episode, just check out the website at theauthorbiz.com. You can also subscribe to the show at the site by clicking the big green subscribe button or at iTunes or Stitcher. If you have comments or suggestions, please leave them at the site, or you can email me at authorbiz at gmail.com. I'm Stephen Campbell, and I hope you'll join us again next time.